call it the nerve center of the Naval Sustainment System Aviation. When the Secretary of Defense mandated all services achieve an 80% mission-capable rate for strike fighter aircraft, the Naval Aviation Enterprise established the Maintenance Operations Center in Norfolk, Virginia as a central cooperation point. Today, this collaborative forum of stakeholders across the Navy, Marine Corps, and industry work together to assess, improve, and integrate efforts to keep aircraft ready to fly tonight, tomorrow, and in the future. Welcome to Airwaves, the official podcast of the Naval Air Systems Command. I'm your host, Michael Lauren Prue. Care to tell us more about this important effort and its role within the Naval Sustainment System Aviation, commonly called NSSA, is Rear Admiral John Meyer, Commander, Naval Air Force Atlantic, Captain Kevin Washburn, Commander, Naval Air Force Atlantic Force Maintenance Officer, and Commander Ronnie Harper, the MOP Director. Thank you all for joining us. Well, it's great to be here, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about the Maintenance Operations Center, or what we call the MOC. Admittedly, we're a little proud of the work that's been done here. You know, as you described, this started really with a, a call to action within Secretary Mattis when he noticed that really across DOD, that the mission capable rates of strike fighter or fighter aircraft across all the services were not really at an acceptable level. And he challenged then Secretary of the Navy Spencer, who started this Navy sustainment system aviation. And as we say around here, we're kind of the lead sled dog in this regard because NSSA has started that initiative and it's now spread. It's started in the shipyards, it's on the surface side, it's in supply, and it's, it's really more of a process for how we get after solving some of our challenging problems, if you will. The aspect of the mock that I think is most prescient point here is, is first and foremost, this, this concept is really informed from a partnership with industry. And we brought in some outside consulting groups. In this case, it was the Boston Consulting Group that came in and helped us. I like to say they led us out of the wilderness, so to speak, to help us do our job a little bit better. It really took the CNO to help execute that and as the lead synchronizer to, I think, cattle prod the process along and while the mock gets a lot of the credit, so to speak, because we're the outward facing, I think we're the, the tactical edge, if you will, or the, the integrator of all of the, the different efforts. It's important to understand that the mock is, well, it's the hub. There are other aspects of NSSA that are enormously important. We refer to them as pillars, but it's really more of a matrix. We've made significant reforms in our FRC, which is our fleet readiness centers in the supply chain reform is hugely important to us as non-mission capable supply is one of the biggest drivers for why an aircraft might be not mission capable. An example of that would be as we do reliability control boards and review the reliability of individual components that might be degrading an aircraft. It is that engineering process that does the deep analysis identifies those critical components, works with industry. And in the case of the E2D, we actually went so far to work with industry, redesign power amplifier modules, and we've seen a direct result in improved mission capable rates. There's also a set of governance, which is really just the business rules of how all these pillars stitch together. Operational level reform is that deck plate level of how we report our aircraft 
we've newly pulled cost into this as well because we're not just doing this to improve the mission capable rates. We have to do that in a means that is more effective and more efficient. And to put that in perspective, we know from a maintenance perspective that if I've got $1,000, there is a way to optimize that $1,000 in terms of what parts I buy that brings the highest rate of return for readiness. It's that notion that we're driving towards on the cost piece. And, then, and we're also expanding into the training piece because let's face it, the individuals that are doing the maintenance at all those positions, whether that's intermediate level or operational level in the squadron, they have to be trained and they have initial training, they have interim training and the better trained those individuals are, the better the maintenance quality will be, the higher the first pass yield and we'll see the dividends of that in higher mission capable rates. Well, I'm on this topic, one of the things that our consultants helped us with, and they were really informed by the airline industry. So much of what they did was airline industry informed. And there's not a direct parallel, but there's enough connective tissue between the way the airlines run their business and the way we run our business, so to speak. And fundamentally, that's the concept of Maintenance Operations Center or MOC, where the synchronizing agent, where we have a series of phone calls, drumbeat phone calls, and those phone calls really pull all of those pillars together. So we have engineering representatives there. We have the supply chain. We have industry on there. All of the squadron maintenance leadership teams call in for those, and we basically drill down on those units or those aircraft that are having particular challenges. Fundamentally, there are two reasons why an aircraft might be down. One is that it's awaiting maintenance, might be especially involved maintenance. It might be the, the overall capacity of the maintenance department or prioritization. Sometimes we can help with that. Other aspect would be the supply piece. And those are fundamentally the two reasons why an aircraft might not be mission capable. I think that the biggest aspect of this, though, is this entire process. The output has really just been eye-watering. For years and years, we kind of languished at about 230, maybe 240 mission-capable F-18s over the years, even though we were increasing the overall inventory. And within about two years, now this didn't happen overnight, it took a while to fix all of these aspects, but after about two years, we hit our target, which we, quite frankly, at the time that we started this, we thought was a stretch goal. And that was 341. We hit that and we just recently increased that stretch goal to 360. And for the last 30 days, our average mission capable F-18s has been 359. So while this lead sled dog was the Hornet community, they you know did all the foundational work, the ability to spread that and apply that to other type model series, that part has truly been impressive. An example of that would be maybe the P8 community or the E2 community. Those communities were chomping at the bit. They saw the, the output from the Rhino community and, and where they were and where they got to. And in the case of the E2D, in about 30 days, they met their mission-capable targets. Now, I tell you all that, but this is really a synchronizing effort and I, I did want to introduce a couple of folks. You had mentioned them at, at the outset, but I've got 
Captain Brett Washburn here, who's our director of aviation material readiness, and he's really been here from the outset. I'll turn this over to him in a second, but first I wanted to introduce Commander Ronnie Harper, who's our mock director, truth in advertising. He's the military mock director. We have a civilian mock director, which provides a tremendous amount of continuity, and that's Dave Ferreira. Many of you know him as Super Dave. And it's that partnership between Ronnie and Dave that really run the day-to-day aspect of the mock. It's they're at that tactical level, engaging directly with units and all of the stakeholders and pillar leads uh, to come together to that. So, Ronnie, you uh, want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing? Yes, sir, Admiral. As the Admiral said, Commander Ronnie Harper, I've been at the mock for about eight months or so, and one of the things that I've noticed since I've been here, is before NSSA and the mock, all of the pillars that the Admiral mentioned, they were all, all working readiness at that time. However, they were working them in their own little stovepipe. They weren't working together. What the mock has given us is the ability to focus all of those other pillars on what's hurting the flight line today and how can we join efforts to get this airplane up or what's the next problem we see so that everybody's not working readiness in their own direction, we're all going in the same direction. I think the results are are pretty easy to see. The rhino readiness has never been higher since I've been in the Navy, and every other TMS is experiencing the same production from the mock. But as the Admiral said, it's not just the mock; it's FRC and it's supply, and it's everybody else in conjunction working towards one goal by seven different goals, if that makes sense. One of the big things that Commander Harper mentioned was we were working together, whether it was supply, the FRCs, the flight lines, and, and the TICOM. We're working together, but we all had our own separate measures of success. When we were averaging 250, say, aircraft or less, if we look at our individual metrics, supply was doing well, the FRCs were doing well, things of that nature. The problem was everybody was showing that they were in the green, that they were doing well, yet our readiness levels were going down. And that's where NSS Aviation brought everything together and gave us that focus of the only thing that really matters. Our individual measures of success really do not matter. It's that overall target, what we now call Mission Capable Aircraft Required or MPAR number. What are the number of aircraft for each specific TMS that we need in order to fight tonight? And that was one of the big changes was taking those individual metrics and measures of success and creating that one what Admiral Meyer and Vice Admiral Weitzel, the air boss, referred to as that North Star goal. And that, to me, was the key by putting us together and driving us towards that one measure of success. I think it's that aspect of the North Star of of having an output-based objective, a very clear target. When we started this process, 341 was the target for Rhinos. And again, they were the the first type model series that we did this. And you would see that number 341 all over the place. You'd see it on the walls. You'd see it in the maintenance departments. It was talked about constantly. And I'm here to tell you, when we started, we were a long, long way from 341. And to look back on that, it was really an aspirational goal. So I applaud the folks that started this process and kept at it because it was not for the faint of heart. You talk about organizational change. The entire enterprise was changing. All of the pillars were changing. And this synchronizing effort of the mock itself was the cat herder. 
we were pulling all those those change efforts together and driving that and holding them accountable as to what the objective was. Somewhere in that process, we hit a tipping point. And that tipping point was really where everybody started to realize, hey, this works. This isn't just change for change's sake. This isn't just activity. This is, holy mackerel, the needle's moving. And we hit 341 the first time, and it was pretty euphoric, and we fell back down. And then we came back up, and we sustained 341 for a tremendously long time. And we put in place business rules and governance for when you would have variance in that. And recognize, too, that that's an aggregate number. We really drill down. The devil is in the details, of course. We drill down unit by unit to help them. And I think that might be a, a really good way to describe that, wouldn't you say, Ronnie, that we are supporting in that role? Yes, sir. So it's the process. We have a sound process and we know how to recover and the things that we need to do to get back to 360 or whatever the number that the Admiral and Airboss decide it's going to be at the end of the day. If your process is not sound, then you're not very consistent in your goals. You may get there one day and it might be two weeks before you get there again. To me, the MCAR number is almost like the Super Bowl, if you were to use an analogy. You can have a football team full of individual superstars, but if they're not working towards the same goal, they're probably never going to win the Super Bowl. The MCAR target, all those pillars working separately can be doing great things, as Captain Washburn said. But until you can get them focused on one goal, you're probably not going to get there. And I think we've proven over the last seven to nine months that the team knows how to get there and they know what to do to sustain that as well. And I think one of the big items as well is the fact that the mock is there to help. And when you stand up a new TMS, there's always those folks that are kind of concerned that, you know, why is the mock getting involved in this kind of detail? But they find out very quickly that the mock is truly there to facilitate communication and to help them achieve their individual goals, which all feed into that overarching MCAR number. And like Commander Harper mentioned, it's very important that they understand not only what their requirements are to meet their particular missions for their individual unit, but how that ties into that overall MCAR number that the Navy and or Marine Corps need in order to be able to operate as a whole. And I think that was a big change is getting squadrons to change from only worrying about their particular squadron and understanding where they play into the overall big picture. And that's where the mock has shown them that they are there to help. We're there to facilitate communication. We're not there to point fingers. We're there to identify barriers to their success and to go after those barriers, giving them real-time information. And I think an example of that barrier identification is sometimes we'll identify, and I love seeing this when I'm, I'm listening in on a mock call, it's we'll identify a part or a component that's a critical part that's keeping an aircraft down. And the squadron will identify it. The cell lead, uh, the call director will ask a question about that part. And before the squadron can ever even answer, you'll have the nav sub rep or the industry rep talking about where the part is, the fact that it's in shipping or in movement, when it's expected to be there. And they'll, they'll immediately start this interaction with the command of, I expected to be at the loading dock at this particular time, have your folks there. And I mean, just think about that synergy that 
we're not sitting around waiting. We're actively tracking components like that. And it makes a world of difference. And you don't have to do too much of that before squadrons really understand that this process is there to help them. And I would add, we refer to it as an ecosystem. Prior to the mock and NSSA, an O-level maintainer may not have any idea how the actions in his or her squadron that day impacts the FRC pillar or the supply pillar. So now we've given them the tools to understand that what you do in one pillar may affect four or five other pillars, which hinders you to get to that MCAR target as well. So that's been a huge learning lesson, training tool, whatever you want to refer to it as from every piece of that is it's not just an FRC issue. That FRC issue bleeds into three or four other pillars issues. It also kind of gives the squadrons and those at the O level a peek behind the curtain because those of us who grew up on the flight line, you think you understand FRC, you think you understand engineering or supply. And when in reality, you really don't. You, you know the basics, but by the mock bringing all those entities together on the same phone call, it's been a big education for the squadrons to truly learn how engineering supply and the FRCs do work. And that leads to nothing but goodness. The more educated they are on how the process is, they truly understand by them not doing something, how it impacts things. Has definitely improved some of the issues that we did have on the flight line by maybe holding on to a part longer than they should have. Now they understand by delaying that part from being turned in, how it truly impacts the system as a whole. At its grassroots level, the mock and the things we're doing now, it's a training evolution. Every call, someone either in our building or on the flight line or in an ASD somewhere, learn something about their job they didn't know before, which makes them better maintainers, better supply officers, which helps the enterprise become more sustainable to get done what we're trying to get done. I would probably chalk this up to a vision and, and to organizational change. I really have to applaud Brett and his entire organization, really the whole staff here, because we've kind of gone away from a, a rather traditional Napoleonic organizational structure, which is the stovepipes where individual, like the supply department was in one particular wing of the building and the maintenance department was another. If you go to the mock today, it's a very flat organization, meaning that we have representatives from all of those folks in chairs, not just involved in calls and actively working, but that is their office. So they don't just go there for a, a phone call and a drumbeat, but they work there. And if you think about the synergy that that creates, that organizational change is not necessarily easy. But again, it's very hard to argue with the results. Now, as I challenge my team here at Air Lance and really across the NAE, I think that this is not the end state where we are with the mock. I think that this is the end of the beginning. Because when I think about readiness, I think about much more than just the material readiness of our aircraft. That's fundamental. You have to have mission-capable aircraft in order to be able to train, to fight, win, and ideally to prevent future wars because we are forward deployed, ready, lethal, and operate with a, a will to fight. But in order to get to that state, you need a little more than just aircraft. From a TICOM perspective, we talk about manning, training, and equipping. So you need to have the personnel there. You have to have that critical training for both the maintainers, for the air crew, and then for a larger, more integrated aspect. You have to have the facilities, the bases, the infrastructure. You have to operate in a safe fashion 
as well. And when you start to stitch all that together, what I'm really describing sounds much more like an airline air operations center. Coming full circle to that, that connective tissue to the mock being derived from the airline model, where I see this ultimately going is that naval aviation has an operations or a readiness center that is tracking all aspects of that that is not just developing the aircraft, but it's developing the people, it's developing the training. We're actively monitoring the weather such that we know where training can be conducted, where it can't be conducted. We're making uh, deliberate decisions and assisting units in the development of that as effectively and efficiently as we possibly can. And that's where the cost piece really comes in. We visited Southwest Airlines and it was incredibly eye-opening. Their air operations center that's where that company either makes money or loses money. The effectiveness and the efficiency by which they adjust things. You know, on a gorgeous day where all the aircraft work, it's pretty easy. But where they really get stressed is when weather comes in, when aircraft come down, how they prioritize their lines. It's the same process. And fundamentally, that's exactly where we're going to take naval aviation in this regard. That'll take us a, a while yet, but I think we're well down that path. So it sounds like a lot has changed since the mock stood up three years ago, including the recent transition into a new facility. Commander Harper, how has this new facility increased the mock's capability and the service you're able to provide the fleet? When I checked in, I will be totally upfront. I was a little bit not awe-inspired by the old facility because it was almost thrown together at the last minute. But really at the capacity level for IT and infrastructure to be able to expand past the few TMSs that we had in the the old building. The new building, state-of-the-art IT, state-of-the-art facility, not only gives us more capability and capacity with the Type Mall series airplanes that we had in the mock in the previous building, but we've already started to expand into other TMS airplanes for the Navy and the Marine Corps, and we still have plenty of room for growth into further Marine Corps additions, the Navy Reserve, even into probably F-35 at some point. So we're really excited about being over there because We could provide a product in the old building, but the quality of product that we can provide now is exponentially better than what we could do in the old building. And I would also offer that I think that the space really lends itself to innovation and creativity. If you think about what you need to be an innovative organization, you really need two things and you need time and you need space. And and I think we certainly have the space and the facility for that. We've changed the organizational structure such that we've streamlined the drumbeat. And I think that we have time to think about and develop better ways of doing this. I'm really proud of the team because it's not just show up to work and do your job well. We kind of expect that. It's show up to work, do your job well. How can I make it better? What are the barriers? How can I do this at a more effective cost. And we're also not going to constrain ourselves, again, just to the aviation equipment side. So the facility that we have, we took an old hangar, by the way, the hangar is Victor 88 here in Norfolk. And, you know, to look at the outside of the hangar, it's an old uh, 1940s, 50s vintage hangar built like a tank, mind you. But we refurbished one part of the space. It's quite literally state of the art as nice as any Navy space that I've seen in my 36 years. And we've got another side of that hangar that we're going to expand. And we're going to take this exact same process, 
which is already ongoing for our aircraft carriers in the ROC is what we call it, the Readiness Operations Center. And we're gonna basically do the exact same thing on the carrier side. Again, with this vision that readiness is more than just aircraft material condition. It's a much larger picture than that. And I couldn't be more proud of the team that we have here at Airland, the folks that we've brought in, all of our partners that play such a vital role in this as well. So Admiral, in this push to get better, to improve the process, what would you say have been some of the mock's biggest accomplishments to date? Well, I would tell you the main accomplishments of the mock to date have really been with complete transparency to drive towards a North Star objective. Again, we started that with the F-18 and we've expanded that to other type model series. We just recently started the mock process for the C-130. We do MB-22, which is Navy and Marine Corps, and we have the capacity to really do all of naval aviation. And that's quite frankly, the vision for that. But it is the transparency aspect and the synchronizing aspect. And, you know, one of my favorite adages is it's amazing how much you can get done if you're not really worried about who gets the credit. And I don't think this is in this process, folks are worried about getting a pat on the back or accolade. It's a unifying effort to drive to a North Star objective in every one of these type model series. But it's not just chasing a number for number's sake. Let's be very, very clear on what it is we're doing. The aircraft that we are driving towards, the mission capable, and it's important to note that it's not just mission capable. We've seen the same increase in fully mission capable aircraft as well. But it is those aircraft that are mission capable and fully mission capable that are the aircraft that make the bulk of our naval response, our forward presence, that ability to deploy ready naval forces at a time and place of our choosing that is well-armed, well-trained, prepared, materially sound, and with aircrew and maintainers that are prepared, wholly prepared to fight and prevail if the need be. Now, I very much believe that that's what we train for. We prepare for war on a daily basis. Most of us pray for peace on a daily basis as well. But if we do our job right, if we produce these ready aircraft, if these, these lethal and well-trained aircrew, we don't fight the next war, we prevent the next war because our adversaries recognize that we are there, that we are ready, lethal. We're not just a show of presence, we're a show of force and a show of capability and national resolve. And that's what naval air forces and the aircraft flying off naval aircraft carriers, that's exactly what uh, we're here for. So again, not chasing a number, but delivering readiness for our Navy and for our nation. So looking into the future, what's next for the mock? I would argue that from a mock, purely mock perspective, We've got a, a great opportunity to drive efficiency and cost effectiveness. That's where I think where we can really be most effective in the quickest return on investment. Beyond that, it's that deeper look at readiness. It's beyond just the aircraft equipment side. It's opening the aperture now on the training and the manning aspects of how we man units. And I know I mentioned it earlier, but I'll go back to the point, you know, we typically talk about manning, training, and equipping as a type commander. 
but there's so much more to it than that. There's the human factor of are our families ready? Are our sailors ready? Are they well-trained? Are they psychologically prepared and secure? Those sorts of aspects are fundamental. It's not just our aircraft, it's our aircraft carriers as well. And when I look at the aircraft carrier side, we look at planning activities to prepare for the next maintenance availability. We look at execution of ongoing maintenance. And if that's not done effectively and efficiently, what we see is we don't get our aircraft carriers out of maintenance availabilities on time. And then that ripples across the force. When I really think about the future, I think it's really only limited by our imagination, quite frankly. And that's not going to come from me or another admiral sitting in a dark room thinking up bright ideas. It comes from the young men and women like Ronnie and Brett are thinking creatively about how to do this better and how to uh, meet those objectives, the strategic objectives of improving our readiness more efficiently on a day-in, day-out basis. Well, I mean, the mock is concentrated for the most part up to this point on the supply and engineering issues that are affecting their ability to get those aircraft up. There are a lot of other things that impact a squadron or a maintainer's ability to get an aircraft into a mission-capable status, support equipment being one of them. I think there's a lot that we can do within the mock by taking a hard look at the support equipment availability, the condition that it's in, how can we make it easier for that maintainer on the aircraft to have the support equipment that they need. The facilities the Admiral touched on earlier, some of the facilities we have great challenges with the condition of those facilities and where the maintainers are trying to do this maintenance, just trying to get a, a good handle on that, as well as the training aspects that Admiral Meyer had mentioned earlier, is helping identify what training could be used to help those maintainers be able to do something either more efficiently, make sure that it's fixed correctly the first time. And Amok can do a better job, I think, of identifying those support equipment facility training issues than what we have in the past, just for the fact that we do have the new facilities, our partners are all in and are just willing and chomping at the bit to look for ways to better improve what we do on a daily basis. Again, a team effort, whether it's from supply, engineering, but the sailors and the Marines on the flight lines, they're the ones that are going to be able to feed us what we can do to help them. That's ultimately the question is to them is what can we do better what can we do differently that's going to improve not just the condition of the aircraft, but the environment that they're actually working in to make sure that they're safe? And ultimately, that is the goal. It's not just mission-capable aircraft, but reducing aviation ground mishaps and making sure that our sailors and Marines are safe. So the one thing I would add to that from my perspective uh, is maintainer training. Everything that we're dealing with now, the base level of why one of the reasons why we're having those issues is because of maintenance training. We want a sailor or, or a Marine to show up to their unit as trained as we can possibly get them. It's an investment in the future of the Navy and the Marine Corps to make sure that those maintainers are trained as much as we can possibly do before they get to their squadron or unit. And the facility piece, I would say three months after I got here, there was a paint booth issue in Hawaii that was slowing down turnaround times for PMIs for V-22. I had no idea when I got here that I was going to be dealing with paint booths in Hawaii, but we were able to reach into some other places and get that paint booth turned around so they could get V-22 out on time from PMIs, which we've already discussed. That's part of that ecosystem. If an airplane is late coming out of PMI, 
That means the squadron gets it late and there's a trickle down effect for every single pillar ending up with a not a shadow on the ramp that a squadron can use to train. So pretty eye-watering the impact that the mock can have on those pillars, but it's all because of those pillars and the sailor Marines that are working every single day to try to do the right thing. Much of what we've talked about today has shown the impact of this work and what it's brought to naval aviation. But I want to ask as a closing question to round us out, why is this work so important? I believe the work's fundamentally important back to a point that I made earlier about our role. It's not just to produce 360 aircraft. It's to produce combat-ready aircraft, combat-ready crews, and to forward deploy our naval air forces, ideally to prevent future wars, but if that is not successful, to fight and win in future conflict. So we've done that. We've improved the readiness of that tremendously. And I would argue we've always done pretty well on the units that we've deployed, less so on those units that we're preparing for the next deployment. So what this has really done is it's given us a much more robust surge capability to a fight, a future fight, or greater capacity in terms of deterrence. I would also argue that it's really leading the Navy in how we can be better stewards of one of our great charges. As commanders, we're really charged with two great responsibilities. One is our people. And I would argue that our people's far and away our most precious resource, our nation's sons and daughters. And, And the other is the billions and billions of dollars of materiel that we are entrusted with as commanders. I think what we have done in this process is we have demonstrated that we are better stewards, quite frankly, of both. We certainly see the output on the aircraft side, but I'll tell you, no maintainer, nobody in naval aviation wants to come to work and see a flight line full of aircraft that have been cannibalized in one form or another. They want to see up aircraft. They want to meet the flight schedule. They want to train the aviators and they want to deploy with a fully ready force. I think we've demonstrated that. We've really set, I think, the standard for all of the other communities in in the Navy and all of the other platforms in the Navy as well on, yes, this can be done. It takes hard work. It takes dedication. It takes investment. I would argue in our case, it takes reorganization as well and uh, critical thinking and innovation. The only thing I would say is none of that that Admiral Meyer just talked about happens without the buy-in from Navy leadership. Admiral Meyer, the vice chief, air boss, everybody, their commitment to getting this right has made everything we're doing possible. It's eye-watering to see the process work as an old school maintainer. Sometimes you thought you were on an island by yourself in a flight line because nobody was trying to help you. Now you see the process and you hear on those phone calls and you hear your leadership talk about every, at every opportunity that the sailors matter, the process matters, uh, and our mission matters. It reinvigorates the force, if that makes sense. It hasn't just been talk. There's been a lot of different initiatives in the past, a lot of acronyms thrown out there. This time it was action, and it was from the top down, and it was full support from leadership, from SecDef, SecNav, all the way down. And you can see that when you're that young airman or you're the commanding officer in a squadron, you know when something is important. And you know when something's being given lip service. This was not being given lip service. They saw the action. They saw leadership personally involved in this process and explaining why it was so important. 
and then backing up their actions with finances, the money side of the house. A lot of things were done and prioritized. So if it's important, then we find the assets in order to make it happen. A lot of people from the FRCs, our supply brethren, you know, provided bodies instantly, whereas before it may have taken years to palm for bodies. They took things out of hide in order to put towards this effort to make sure it was successful. And that would not have taken place had leadership not shown the resolve and the importance of what this meant to naval aviation, the need to get us to those readiness levels needed to be able to fight tonight. And like the Admiral said, not just deploy, but to be able to do the training and have that surge capability back here. It was just, it's been a, a really good experience to see that and for it to continue. It wasn't a one or two year initiative and then someone transferred and now we have something new. This is enduring and it has the backing of naval leadership. And I think that's key that people and especially on the flight line have seen actions taken to try to improve conditions for them, not just for the aircraft, but also for the sailors. And I think going forward, that's where the mock can really try to focus is we've got the aircraft going in the right direction. Now, what we, can we do to make it better for those Marines and sailors actually doing that maintenance? Yeah, Brad, I think you nailed it. When you say it's enduring, I would say it's ingrained. Sure. This is how we do business, which is, you know, from three years ago, marked difference from how we did business. The synchronizing process of the mock now has really changed the culture. And I would argue that naval aviation's rallied around the output. They've directly seen the benefits of this process. And I think the resistance is gone. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank all of you for joining us today to talk about the MOC, its role within the Naval Sustainment System Aviation, and how it is helping us to ensure readiness across the fleet. This is the fifth in a series of podcast episodes about NSSA. You can check out the other episodes by subscribing to the Airwaves podcast on all your favorite listening apps. And that's it for this edition of Airwaves. Thanks for listening.